everybody, I'm really happy to have as my guest on today's podcast, one of my heroes, Bree Dressen, who's known as the kind of Joan of Arc of this vaccinology crusade. And Bree was, thought she was doing the right thing when she signed up for the COVID-19 AstraZeneca vaccine trial in 2020. She subsequently joined the growing number of severely vaccine injured people at a press conference in Washington, D.C. Following the press conference, she wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, which of course is one of the premier medical journals in the world, complaining that their report about the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine was incomplete because AstraZeneca had not properly reported her injury. And as it turns out, other injuries as well. And Bree has been the, because she's so eloquent and articulate, and she's emerged as this extraordinary leader, she is somebody that the other side, the medical cartel needs to silence. So she has been evicted from the social media platforms because she talks about her vaccine injury. And I wanna talk to you about that, but Bree, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's hear the whole chronicle from the beginning. Well, <laughs> it's a long timeline because I, I was so confident in the COVID vaccines that I signed up for the clinical trial here in the United States for AstraZeneca. And, and I got my- You're in Utah, right? I'm in Utah, yes. And so the test clinic was in Salt Lake City. I had never had any issue with any previous vaccine. So I figured it would be no big deal. Go get my shot and do my part to help get us all out of the pandemic. And so I gladly signed up for my shot and I got my shot on November 4th, 2020. And within an hour, I got tingling down my arm, the same arm that I had my shot. Later that night, I had blurred and double vision. So I was watching TV and instead of one TV, there were two. So <laughs> there should only be one TV when you're looking at it. But so my vision was double vertical. And I started having these strange sensations uh, in, in my hearing. So it started to sound like I had seashells on both of my ears. And I just remember looking at my husband and thinking, you know, something's not right here. And so that night I had a typical vaccine response where you have the fever and the malaise, but that had all resolved by morning, but the sensory issues that had started the night before had actually become worse. So I got up to get ready for work because I'm a preschool teacher. So you can't call in sick, you know, these little kids depend on me every day to show up and, and, and help them and have continuity, you know, in their routines. It's significant for little people to have, you know, routine and the same people in their lives that they can trust and rely on to help them. So I get up to go to work and my left leg is slumped and I started walking into the left side of the doorways. It was really strange. It's always to the left. And by the end of the class period, the cute little voices of the preschoolers, it was too painful for my ears. I just remember telling them, oh, you need to be a little bit quieter today. We sure need to use our inside voices today but it wasn't the kids. It was my sensitivity to sound had just, you know, gone off the charts. And so I just parked them in front of the TV, the little learning program. I had turned off the lights in the classroom because the sensitivity to light had just exploded as well. And I just waited for the preschool kids' parents to come get them. I called the test clinic. They didn't call me back. So I was like, maybe this actually is a typical response. Maybe it'll resolve. Cause you would think, if there was something wrong, a test clinic would actually follow up with you if you reported some strange symptoms. 
but I didn't hear back from the first day. The second day, more symptoms stacked on. I started having some severe vibrations, which still haunt me to this day. The third day, they finally called me back and I went in for a neurological exam and they did a pretty thorough exam. And they said, you know, it looks like you might have MS and AstraZeneca did have one case of MS pop up in the UK before my injury. And so they recommended that I go get that checked out. I called all the offices in the Valley and they all said, we can't see you for three months. You need to go to the ER. So that landed me in the ER, the first of six ER visits. So it was kind of strange because they ran all of the tests, lumbar punctures, CT scans. Did you say the first of 60? First of six of the ER visits. I've had over 60 office visits in the last 12 months, which by contrast, before this, I was a healthy mother of two. Uh, I hiked a mountain here because it's Utah. So we're, you know, we're in the mountains and we love the mountains. We ski and rock climb and do all of those things. And there's a hike here that I did three weeks before my shot. 15 and a half miles and the average time to do it is nine and a half hours. And I did it in seven. So as far as physical condition goes, I was in prime condition. So I was an ideal candidate for the study. So when I was in the ER, they ran all of these tests. I came up with my TSH had skyrocketed. My muscle wasting had popped up really early on, which muscle wasting is not something normal, even though they told me it was normal. And so they sent me home to decline because they didn't have any definitive answers as to what was going on. So at that point, the sensitivity to sound had become so severe, I had to have earplugs in my ears. And you know, those big earmuffs that people use for shooting. I had those over my ears with earplugs inside my ears. And I had to be in my room, confined by myself, totally alone, 24 seven. Even the sound of my husband's pants swishing was too painful for my ears. My dog panting, the sound of him panting was too painful. Running water was too painful. It became so bad that I couldn't even brush my teeth because my teeth became extremely sensitive. My hands became so sensitive. No one could touch my hands. My body felt like it was on fire. And from that point on, my kids were removed from my lives. And I have a, they were six and eight at the time. And so that was pretty, you know, pretty traumatic for them. I went from someone that everyone relied on me to help them. My kids depended on me day in and day out to someone who needed that love and support and advocacy for her. So I was a completely hollowed out person of who I once was. And it was by far the worst and scariest experience of my life. Week two was worse than week one. My heart started having a severe tachycardia blood pressure fluctuations. Um, I started having these crazy adrenaline dumps, which I'm sure you've, you've heard of where the people are just shaking. That happened to me. And it was strange. I had no idea what it was. I'm not an anxious person. It's not an anxiety attack. You have no control over it. Your body has a mind of its own. The reaction takes over your body and there's nothing you can do about it, but hold on and hope that you survive. So by week three, I landed in the hospital because my legs stopped working and I had become incontinent. And at that point, my husband was extremely concerned that he was going to lose me, you know, that I was going to die, especially just because the physicians had no idea what was going on. The test clinic wasn't returning our calls. And so he asked the test clinic and the physicians in my hospital, is it reasonable to get her unblinded so we can actually identify what's happening to her? And so the test clinic said, yes, we need to, because she was admitted to the hospital. Unfortunately, what I've learned now is that's a tactic that they use to kind of 
brush aside these serious adverse events. And from a scientific standpoint, it, that appears to be, to me, the integrity of science is at stake if you're brushing aside serious adverse events, like what happened with me. So after I- uh, What you're talking about is they subtracted you from the study. I can't. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I didn't know what happened to my data for months and months. I know for a fact they followed up with me for 60 days and they asked for my medical records. They agreed to pay for my medical expenses, the whole nine yards. And after day 60, it was like crickets. So I didn't hear anything back. We followed up and we said, hey, here's some medical bills. You know, when can we expect to see payment? We wouldn't hear back, wouldn't hear back, wouldn't hear back. And then finally in July, I heard back from the test clinic because they saw a news story run on me locally. And so, and I mentioned the test clinic. So they called and they said, hey, we're ready to issue you a payment. And so we said, great. And they said, of $590. And they said, missing a couple of zeros, don't you think? And they said, oh, maybe we don't have all the information. We said, don't issue a payment, go back and try again. They wired the $590 to my account anyway. And then just recently, just last week, they sent a settlement offer to my account for $1,243. And in the settlement, I have to agree to waive all liability and any responsibility from the drug company. The value of my life to the drug company is worth $1,200 plus the $590. Like to me, that blows my mind because I haven't talked to them since uh, the end of January about my actual physical condition. So when the the journal, the New England Journal of Medicine published the report of the AstraZeneca clinical trial. And that was the end of September. I was more than happy to look at it and see, you know, okay, what, what data are they actually collecting? What have they been evaluating? Cause I was genuinely curious what had been going on through this time, because I hadn't heard anything in the second paragraph in the report, they discuss how they follow up with all serious adverse events for 730 days. A serious adverse event qualifies if you were admitted to the hospital or if you had died. I definitely was admitted to the hospital. And without question, I can say they did not follow up with me for anything near 730 days. So that's hit number one where, okay, there's some questions that need answered. Question number two comes up and later on, further down in the report, they, they have a flow chart and they discuss how those that could not get the second dose which that's me because I was only able to get one dose. And then I was unblinded because I was admitted to the hospital. It was confirmed that I did receive the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine at that time. And I also, yeah, so they say in the report that people chose to forego getting the second dose. There is no mention of people actually being withdrawn, which is what happened to me. Because when they unblinded me, they said, because of your serious adverse event, we recommend that you not get the second shot. As far as the rest of the report, I can't find any of my information in there. So of course, my husband's a scientist. And so for him to go from being totally confident in the science, that the science is what's gonna get us out of the pandemic, right? Follow the science, follow the science. So we thought we were doing our part to contribute to the scientific process. And instead what's happened is a totally different process than what we believed in, what we were led to understand, what was actually happening with the data. And there's a lot of questions. So I actually submitted a complaint to the New England Journal of Medicine 
And this is actual stand, standard protocol for when there is a discrepancy in a scientific report, uh, you can submit to ask them to rectify the situation. I heard back from not an admin at the New England Journal of Medicine. I heard back from Eric Rubin at the New England Journal of Medicine. He also is on the vaccine advisory committee for the five to 11 year olds with the FDA. And uh, he's the guy that unfortunately has become infamous for saying, uh, you can't, we won't know what happens with these vaccines until we start giving it to kids. And so uh, he, he was the one that elected to contact me directly about my complaint with the AstraZeneca report. Uh, unfortunately, he offered to forward on my complaint to AstraZeneca directly, but then uh, later on in the email dialogue, he declined. And he said, you probably need to reach out to them yourself. But to be honest, I don't know how your case, because you're one in tens of thousands, is going to be relevant. So that was fun to hear. So it's kind of, and I also did submit this. There were 180 people who disappeared from the study after the first dose. It's quite possible, as far as we know, that other people had reactions like yours. And because they withdrew, AstraZeneca simply pretended as if those reactions had not happened. It would be nice for them to answer the question, right? I mean, I think that it's very fair for the American public, for the world, to have the answers to that question. So Eric Rubin also, he said that the only people that have the full data from these clinical trials is the drug companies. Okay. And by the so, way, so they're the only ones who have the Rubin, data. By the way, Eric Rubin sits on the advisory committee of immunization practices. And as you said, he said, we will not know the impacts, the safety until we start giving these to children. And then at the same time, he voted to give them to children. So he's basically voting to have a mass population experiment. And we will learn whether this vaccine is safe if enough people reporting injuries and then he becomes part of the process of covering up those injuries once they're reported. Right. And yes, right. And it blows my mind that we have, there's massive amounts of conflict of interest on many members in those advisory committee. You know, this is old news to you, but I mean, we have all of the uh, people in the executive boards, they're at these drug companies going in and out in different positions at the FDA and the CDC. The vast majority, how much funding is the FDA getting again from the drug companies? 45% of its funding comes from pharma. But the United States government did two massive investigations of that committee, one by Congress in 2003 and another by an HHS committee, an ethics committee in HHS in 2008. That investigation found 97% of people who sat on those committees had potential conflicts of interest, and most of them were unreported. And what, what we now know is that virtually everybody who sits on those committees is receiving funding from the Gates Foundation or from Tony Fauci. Anyway, go ahead. Right, right. So it's like, what possibly could go wrong here, right? I mean, the drug companies have 
no liability, no accountability, right? They've, they spent a lot of time and a lot of resources to cross their T's and dot their I's globally to make sure that they were liability and accountability free, right? And then you've got this conflict of interest from the top down in the agencies at the CDC and the FDA and the NIH. What possibly could go wrong here for people that in my situation who fall through the cracks and have a life altering adverse event to the COVID vaccines? So until we actually look at the problems, right? We're not gonna get anywhere. The integrity of science is at stake here. And this is very concerning to me. And it's not just because my own life has been ruined. It's because this has now happened to thousands and it will continue to happen. And now it's happening to kids. Yeah. And instead of the kids being afforded any kind of appropriate care, recognition, help, it's swept under the rug. It's tragic what's happening. This gets even worse, ladies and gentlemen, because let's talk about the role of Google and Facebook and how they came to your assistance. So social media, it's been a little bit eye-opening. Of course, we are all what you would call good, honest, hardworking Americans. We all had Facebook accounts, social media accounts long before vaccine injuries. Just a little bit of context. I didn't talk about my own COVID vaccine injury publicly until June. So I went from November until June, keeping my symptoms and my suffering to myself and my close family and my preschool parents. That's all that I, and even my preschool parents, I didn't tell them what actually happened. I just said I got really sick and I needed to close the preschool. So for me to go from someone that was that invested and that concerned about causing vaccine hesitancy to where I am now, where I see the flaws, I see the inhumane way that these injured people are being treated, how they're being cast aside and marginalized. And I know it in my bones that this needs to be rectified, that these people deserve better. And the classic example, like we're talking about is Facebook and Google, Instagram, <laughs> YouTube, and, you know, mainstream media as well. And I'm sure that you would agree with me, I would gladly talk to CNN, I would gladly talk to BBC, any of these mainstream media outlets, there is a reason that these stories are not blasted on those outlets. It's not because they haven't talked to us. It's not because they haven't looked at the data. It's not because they haven't reviewed our medical records. I've talked to three reporters at the New York Times myself, I've talked to geez, how many CBS, NBC, ABC, all of them. BBC, they have my medical records. They have my records from the NIH. They know what's happened. They know what's happening and they still can't run it. So this isn't some kind of right-wing, left-wing thing. There's definite censorship happening and it's alarming because freedom of information and freedom of speech in this country needs to be protected. We need people to actually stand up and be willing to protect our freedom of speech. And that also includes holding these not just mainstream media, but the social media companies accountable. We set up support groups starting last spring because we started realizing really fast that there were hundreds and then thousands of us. So they have shut down at least four of my support groups. Who had? Uh, one, Facebook, sorry. So we had in these groups, people who were not able to get medical care they, many of them were not able to get recognition from their own family members that their legs weren't working for a reason. And maybe it was due to the COVID vaccine. 
they are out of work. They cannot get a very essential and appropriate medical exemptions. They are losing their jobs. They cannot claim or file for disability because COVID vaccine reactions don't happen. And so we are all that we have. All we have is each other. And so we started these groups so people could talk about, okay, what labs are coming up positive? I'm having a really hard day. Uh, I need someone to talk to. I mean, just a very simple you know, community for these people to feel like they have a place where they can go to get answers, ask questions, and, and so they could rely on each other for support. And in many cases, this support has been life-saving. Without question, we have saved lives. But also what's tragic is because of what Facebook and the other social media platforms has done is we have, without question, lost lives as well. They dismantled our Facebook groups. The first one was within 24 hours after our initial press conference we did with Senator Johnston in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And within a week of that, they found our second Facebook group and pulled it apart. I lost uh, contact. How many people were in those groups? So between the two groups, we had a little bit over 2,000 people in those first two groups. And what, what you're doing for those people is you're talking about protocols that work, that have worked for people in the group that they otherwise cannot learn about. You're talking about doctors who can treat these conditions, these unique, rare doctors who are actually trying to treat vaccine injury and are developing drug regimens and protocols that in some cases have been very successful. And the only way that these people can find those doctors is through these Facebook groups. And you're also serving as a kind of a a group therapy or support groups for people who are otherwise totally isolated in the universe who are being marginalized and gaslighted officially or being told by their doctors, hospitals, by AstraZeneca, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, that what they're going through is not happening, who are being officially disappeared from any kind of recognition and who are being punished because they're reporting these injuries in a variety of ways. As you said, they can't go to work. And the only place that can get answers and support are on these groups, and Mark Zuckerberg is killing these groups to make sure you guys can't talk to each other. It's been shocking to see what's happened. We spend just as much time trying to source people to get appropriate medical care and the support that they need emotionally as we do trying to circumvent the latest games that Facebook is pulling to try to pull us apart. It's tragic. Tell how you try to get around. You have to use code words. Yeah, so we use code words. (laughs) So, you know, of course, people say the V. And even on Facebook, if you say the word vaccine, or if you say I was injured by the COVID vaccine, your account will be shadow banned, and uh, you will be coded as misinformation. And there was a news article that was run here. It was like the most pro-vax news story in the history of vaccine injuries like the opening line was vaccines save lives and then we talk about my covid vaccine injury because we knew that was the only way that mainstream media was going to run it and someone put that news article up in the group and said hey it looks like maybe the mainstream is going to talk about this and just that news article 
pulled the whole group down because that news article could cause physical harm. So Facebook genuinely believes that we cause physical harm just by saying what happened to us. And I don't know any other circumstance where that is okay. You were, you used the word, one of your groups was able to stay up uh, instead of using the word vaccine, you used the word dancing. Oh yeah, so we used dancing. There were actually a couple of really big groups that um, used the code word dancing. (laughs) And so we talked about dance parties and who's danced and who hasn't danced and what happens if you dance. And so so it's it's very complicated. And then you have to police everybody saying, sorry, you can't use these words. You have to use these preset designated words because we know Facebook isn't going to pull us down. Yeah, Facebook did figure out the dancing code word and they pulled a much bigger group down and they pulled ours down and they ended up pulling down two other groups. One that we were in had to do with tinnitus and this group that I had that had 12,700 people on there. And it's all for the same thing because it can, because if we talk about this, it can cause physical harm. So these people are without question now classified as second-class citizens. We can't even say what's happened to us. We can't seek medical care. We can't seek support from each other. If we do, we're punished. YouTube, it's the same thing. We've put out several very benign awareness videos. They get pulled down all the time. TikTok pulls our accounts down for dangerous acts. So we're dangerous just for pleading and begging for help. Not even like we're standing out there with flags saying, stop the vaccine program. You know, like we literally were starting with square one and square one is just to see us and believe us. It doesn't need to be this complicated. But because of this, we literally have lost lives. I myself have had suicide letters from members. One of my, my very dear friend, she ended her life because of the painful electrical sensations, which I still deal with to this day. If you can imagine putting a nine volt battery on your tongue, that zing feeling, and it kind of grabs you. If you can imagine that coursing through your body, that painful electrical sensation 24 seven, there's no relief. There's no break for sleep. So you can't sleep with that going on. You can't eat. You can't think because it's surging through your brain like that. For me, it's like, it doesn't surprise me when people do end it. And it's not just because they're sad and they're marginalized. It's literally because their body is attacking itself 24 seven and there's no way to make it stop. And the only way out is to end it because we have social media platforms silencing these people. So they don't even know that we exist. And when they do connect with us, then they get pulled apart. It's tragic what's happened. It's inhumane and it's, it's beyond the worst kind of cruelty. And I never, ever would have expected this to be a reality in 2021 in the United States of America. This goes against everything I've ever been taught, you know, about liberties, about freedoms, and it's just tragic. And I've seen it firsthand. I had to write a eulogy for my dear friend, one of them that passed away because she took her life because of the vibration. Another one, she was on life support. We got her in connection with the NIH when we were working with the NIH. The NIH has her brain. They have her eyes. They have her blood vessels. They have her muscle particles. The NIH knows, and they know at a very acute level what is happening to the vaccine injured. We thought that they were on our side and that they were going to 
publish and essentially provide a way out for everybody. And as you can see, that hasn't happened. And instead of opening doors for us, doors have closed repeatedly. And this started pretty shortly after I started drilling down with the FDA. <laughs> so I started, because it was obvious by May and June that the government wasn't doing their job and they didn't have any intention of doing their job. Me and other vaccine injured had been reaching out individually directly to the heads of the FDA. So Janet Woodcock, the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, the NIH, Anthony Fauci, Alkius Tagayas, which is also at the NIH. I think he might be number two there. So we've reached out to all of them. We have responses from all of them. And in March, they all said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to figure this out. Just give us a couple of weeks before you go public with this. And we'll, and we're going to figure this out. And then we can, we can help you. As you can see, it's now December and that hasn't happened. So we realized that this was all a game and that we weren't going to get help by May and June. And by this time we had had people take their lives. And we also had kids start to come into our groups. So people like Maddie, the Gary, who was injured by Pfizer, and she now is in a wheelchair, confined to a wheelchair. She can't feel her legs. She can't move. She has an NG tube. She can't eat any solid food. It's tragic what's happened to that girl. So we realized that we needed to act. So from our sick beds, and that point I was still super sick. So I was confined to my bed 24 seven still. And so we turned into little keyboard warriors in our own right. And we drafted a couple of petitions and we asked the CDC and FDA for help, for recognition, so we could get medical care. And of course that didn't happen. So then we decided to turn up the dial a little bit more on the pressure. And uh, we started holding press conferences. We started contacting all of the press that we could find contacts for. And some would respond to us. Others would say, I can't make the vaccines look bad. Uh, you know, and then of course there's Christy Dobbs. She's in our group. She's a COVID vaccine injured and she's in Missouri. And she participated in a news interview that we had with a reporter in Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh, I believe. She was very nice, but in the news interview that she had with about 13 of us, she described how she had been strongly intimidated by a higher up at Pfizer when she reached out to them to ask for a comment on the story. That story never ran, as you can see. As you can see in mainstream media, there's a total blackout. Our faces are not there. Even with the press conferences that Senator Johnson put on with really good, honest, ironclad stories, no questions. Everybody has very thorough medical reports to corroborate our claims. Those didn't make it to the mainstream media. The press showed up to that first press conference Senator Johnson did, but instead of actually showing our faces, they turned around and they said, Senator Johnson is spreading misinformation, blah, 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 right? Misinformation campaign. So that began the campaign of COVID vaccine injuries are misinformation. So congratulations, I'm mis misinformation. You know, it, it's sad because my life is not misinformation, period. The second press conference we did, bigger, in Washington, D.C., we invited more press. And I think we had one mainstream media press person in the room. Didn't run anywhere. So we're silenced. So if you have a problem, right, if you think about historically, when there's corruption in the United States, you know, maybe some other democracies across the world, People actually hold these agencies accountable. They start the conversation. They start to ask these questions, but that's not allowed to happen in this circumstance. 
And because we can't even start the conversation, these people are continuing to suffer and profoundly in silence. They're cast aside, they're hiding in the shadows. We have physicians, there's 20 of them. They can't come forward because they're afraid of losing their license. They can't even talk about their COVID vaccine injury because they're afraid of losing their license. There's something wrong with that. Do you have any idea that a vaccine could cause brain damage when you no. took AstraZeneca? No. And no. I, I had no idea the full scope of these reactions. And I was in phase three. So they're obviously, even with the COVID vaccine specifically, there was safety data that had been collected up to that point. So I do think that the drug companies by that point had known that some of these reactions were possible. As far as, yeah, like the encephalitis and other, um, you know, and strokes, we have people with lesions on their brains, lesions on their spine. Uh, there's, you know, the neuroinflammation presents in many different ways, but it just, it blows my mind because nobody knew this could happen to them. So even after this happened to me, the public still didn't know this was a possibility, right? Even this happened to Maddie DeGarry, who participated in the Pfizer clinical trial. Nobody knew that that could happen to their kid. Even Olivia Tessinar, she was in the Moderna clinical trial. She ended up with severe lymphadenopathy. She had to have her lymph nodes surgically removed. She was confined to her bed for a long time, super sick. People didn't know that could happen. Informed consent was not provided to the American public, period. But usually when you participate in a clinical trial, they legally have to inform you of all the potential injuries. Did you, have you, you must have gone back and looked at that now. Yeah, so my informed consent form is kind of interesting because they talk about it like in depth and it's not like they just, here's the form, sign it. They went line by line to make sure I understood every single word in that document and they signed the bottom and initialed it. They looked at the time even for each page, right? It was very thorough. And in the informed consent, they talked about one case of MS that had popped up in the UK and one case of transverse myelitis that had popped up in the UK, but there was no other side effects that they had indicated. They did talk about autoantibody enhancement in chimpanzees, which I thought was a little strange, but they said, but we haven't seen it in humans, so it's fine. Like, okay, so I sign it. Because once again, lifetime vaccine taker, it never had any problems. So what did I have to lose by helping to end the pandemic? Well, potentially I could have lost everything. I could have lost my life. Yeah, but they also, <laughs> about a week into my vaccine reaction, they had me come back into the clinic. And at that point, sound and light had become so severe that even I had to have the darkest sunglasses I could find. And I had to have my little earmuffs on. And I went into the clinic because they thought I had COVID because my symptoms were so similar to actual COVID. They said, we need to test you for COVID. So I went in, they have their space suits on, you know, and they came in with the laptop and they said, we have a new informed consent document that you need to sign or else we're not going to help you. And at this point, I'm terrified motor dysfunction had begun and my body was attacking itself. So I was just like, please help me. Just somebody help me. I don't know what's happening to my body. There's something wrong. And they put the laptop down and they said, you need to sign this or we can't help you. They, and I couldn't see because I was seeing double, right. They didn't go over the revisions in the informed consent document. So they put the laptop down and they walked out of the room. So I didn't have any choice at that point. I thought I was gonna die. So I signed a revised informed consent form 
And I'm sure the modifications are little legalese, you know, changes in the wording here and there, but they didn't tell me what those changes were. So I had to sign it. I had no choice. And then they came in and they did a bunch of COVID tests. They didn't help me. They sent me home. So they got what they needed out of me. I didn't get what I needed out of them. Was it a university test center there? So it wasn't at the University of Utah. This was a private company of Velocity Clinical Research. But I was seen at the University of Utah, which is a research institution here. That's where I was admitted to the hospital. And because the medications didn't work for three days, they diagnosed me with anxiety and sent me home with intensive physical and occupational therapy because of my anxiety. So your legs stop working and you're peeing your pants and it's anxiety. And it's so severe that you have to be sent home with intensive in-home physical therapy because of your anxiety. So because, <laughs> because I figured, you know, it's like, well, it's brand new. Nobody knows anything about this. Let's give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt. But the unfortunate thing is with our groups, uh, we've formulated a, a patient advocacy organization. It's called react19.org. And, you know, we've been doing research, trying to figure out what's going on. And the vast majority of the patients in our groups have been misdiagnosed with anxiety initially. Yeah. Okay. Tell us how people can reach you, how they can support you. Of course, I want people who are listening to the podcast to know that we are our legal team at meeting with Bree, and we are talking about different kinds of losses, which were very helpful. We can't go into the details, but tell us how people can support you, Bray. Well, there's many things that people can support us. Number one, we just need people to talk about this. We need people to acknowledge that this, these issues are real, and they just need to start talking about this. And not like in a way of, hey, this is why you shouldn't get the COVID vaccine. You know, the most effective way that I've been able to communicate with my friends about this whole issue in general is to start with their perspective. So you start from their view. And if their view is the COVID vaccines are saving lives and anyone that speaks out against them are murderers, you got to start with that perspective and start to draw them in. And by doing that, you say, okay, acknowledge where they're at and then say, okay, what about this other perspective? What about people that do fall through the cracks? What about people that do have side effects? Because Side effects do happen with all drugs. Side effects happen with all vaccines. There's no question. And start asking some of those questions to just kind of slowly start the conversation. We need to bring people back to the middle because what's happening is we've got people on the far right and the far left, and it's just getting more and more polarized. Well, the problem with that is, is that you've got really good people that are suffering and we're being buried under all of that noise, which is unfortunate because we're the ones that need the help, right? We shouldn't be drowning out these voices. So the first thing we need to do is start the conversation, get people to listen. The second is through uh, organizations like react19.org. There's also realnotrare.com. And there's also C19 Vax Reactions. Can you repeat them? So we have react19.org and realnotrare.com. And then there's also the original group that we started, C19VaxVAXReactions.com. And that was with Ken Rutgers, which I believe you spoke with him before. So between those three organizations, we realized that the government is not coming to help us. <laughs> we waited long enough. It's now December. These vaccines have been out for a year. That's 12 long months that people have been suffering on a very extreme level, right? With no help. 
So we figured we have to do this ourselves. And part of our organization is we're building a network of physicians. So if there's physicians that are actually willing to see the vaccine injured, we're looking for compassionate physicians. We're looking for researchers that can help set up IRBs so we can appropriately get some research published into the scientific literature to start the conversation with the medical community. And we also are working on a couple of fundraisers just to help increase awareness. And through REACT 19, we have a REACT care fund for those individuals that need essential medical care, but can't afford it. So there's, there's quite a few ways that people can help. And the problem is, is that the list is long and it's just getting longer because people are growing more and more, more and more isolated. It's tragic what's happened to everybody. And I myself, like I'm feeling better. I was very, very lucky to be one of 20 people that was flown out to the NIH to participate in their research. And so there I was able to get very high dollar, top of the line treatment to kind of help reverse my reaction. But it's heartbreaking to me that the thousands that are suffering like I was are not being afforded that same care. They're just not. Um, And they deserve that care. Every single person on this planet that's had this COVID reaction, they should be afforded some kind of compassionate care, someone to recognize them and see them for what's going on. Redressing, thank you for your heroism, for your commitment, and your compassion for all the people who are injured. And we, of course, will continue to be working with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you.